That's what I was always told. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I sent him back so he could break it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> they had to re-break it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that is. It's not a very good birthday present, Jacob. Yeah, I think all, it's your fault. It's all fun. <laughs> so here we are in Acts chapter eleven, and I put this map up here because this chapter, what we're getting ready to read from verse nineteen to thirty, to me was confusing. I started reading, and I was like, "There's too much going on for me to just not have a picture." I need a picture to understand things oftentimes. And they say a picture's worth a, a thousand words. Um, but there's probably a thousand words on there. But what I wanted to point out is that white part there is the Mediterranean Sea. And to the east, on the right there, you have Jerusalem, where there's a bunch of little red arrows going out. And then you've got all these different towns and, and regions. And, and I know you probably can't read like the yellow writing and some of the little red writing, but I wanted to show that because what we're looking at today is a tactical maneuver, and the Lord is the high commander. And as we look at this maneuver, what we're going to see is that God is always involved in everything that's going on. We oftentimes think about him, we go, Lord, why aren't you dealing with my situation? Why is it taking so long? But if we zoom out of our personal lives and we look at the big picture of things, it might be that he's working on it. And what we're going to see is that God is getting ready to send out troops from Cyrene, all the way over there on the left, from Cyprus, and from Jerusalem at the same time to go to the same area, to the area of Antioch. So what we looked at last week was that sometimes people make things happen. Anybody in here know somebody that's it's just one of those go-getters and they're always making things happen? They're the ones that are kind of behind they're not up there speaking to people but they're the ones doing the work i think about it like the courthouse down downtown we've got right now they they power wash the whole thing off and then they're painting it and it looks like he's spending quite a bit of time to do it it's a lot of work and i would not want that job but he's the one making it happen at this point so some people are like that they're the ones that make it happen peter was available to the lord and we saw him be basically the instrument that God used to open up the gospel to the Gentiles, to anyone who is outside of the nation of Israel. And then there are some people that they're not the ones that make things happen. They're the ones that hear that things happen. Now, this probably encapsulates all of us. We're, we're always listening. We're always paying attention to what people are doing on Facebook. We're always listening to people's stories about what happened during their weekend. There are many people that hear that things happen. And then there are some people that oppose things that happen. And we saw last week as we studied, basically, Peter had come back from the area of Caesarea where he had shared the gospel with Cornelius. The Gentiles received Jesus and God gave them the Holy Spirit and they became believers in Jesus. Uh, Jesus was sent from the Jewish nation to be the Messiah, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. But the Jews weren't really on board with that yet. They thought, this is for us only. And then Peter gets used by God to go and share the, the gospel with Cornelius. And as he does, they receive it. And then he comes back. He's all excited. The Gentiles believe in Jesus. He gets there in Jerusalem. There's these people that had already heard what was going on with Cornelius. And they were upset about it. They were aggravated. Why were they aggravated? Well, because in order for Cornelius to hear the gospel, Peter had to go and eat with him. 
They were upset, not because that he received the gospel, but because Peter had eaten with a Gentile, that dirty Gentile. He had Gentile cooties. Now, were they not supposed to eat with Gentiles according to the law of Moses? No. It was a tradition of theirs that they were not supposed to eat with the Gentiles. It had nothing to do with what God had taught them. And so they were all upset. And so Peter explained to them why he had done it and that it wasn't his idea, but it was, the, it was God orchestrating things so that he could go and share the gospel. So there are some people that make things happen. There are some people that hear things happen. There are many people that oppose things that happen, right? But this week's theme is that some people help other people make things happen. And that's the overarching theme of this week's passage. So let's go to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And in verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So there's this group that was in Jerusalem, and during the time of Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was stoned to death for proclaiming that Jesus was the Savior that God sent to the world, at that point, after Stephen's death, his martyrdom, he was stoned to death, all of those that called on the name of Christ, they didn't forsake Jesus, but they, they were like, we're out of here. Let's get out of Dodge. There's a price on our head. They're going to put us to death. And so what the enemy meant for harm, what those that were enemies of Jesus meant for harm, God meant for good because he took all the people that believed in Jesus, sent them out to different areas with the message of the gospel. He basically spread it out, broadcast it like seed on the ground. Not to get rid of it, but to spread it out so it would be more effective. If you take a barrel of corn seed and you dump it in a pile, and then you put dirt over it, what's going to happen? You might have some stuff grow, but it won't be as much as could grow if you spread that seed over an entire field. And so God's taking that seed that was all lumped in one spot, and he's spreading it over the area, the region of Judea, to Samaria and to the farthermost regions, but this is still happening. This spreading of the gospel is started, but now it's still going on. It's not something that just happened one day and then it stopped. And so here in this passage, we have these persecuted Jewish believers spread out. So verse 20 says, But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So we have two groups. We have Jewish background Christians, and we have Greek cultural Christians. They're from two completely different worlds. One's from a very religious background, the other one's from a very religious background, but a pagan background. And I love that one of them came from Cyrene, some of them did, because if you remember the story of Jesus, when he was walking to the cross and carrying his cross, he was so beaten and bloody that he couldn't carry the cross. And eventually the guards showed a little bit of mercy and they grabbed a huge guy out of the crowd by the name of Simon of Cyrene. And Simon was a man who feared God. He was there watching what was going on. He was there for Passover, one of the religious Jewish feasts. And so as he was there, they called him out and they said, we want you to carry this cross for this this, uh, this man's getting ready to be crucified, and he was a big dude, and he jumped in there and he carried the cross. Simon the Cyrene was from that area all the way over there, closer to Egypt. And so 
we see these believers, they're not just from Jerusalem. Some of them are from farther away. And so Cyprus and Cyrene, they're also going to the same area. And when they get there, there's this issue. You see, the Jews, the Jewish Christians, they're only sharing with Jewish people. And then there's these Gentile people, they're only sharing with Gentiles. Now, is that really reflecting the character of God? Does God only love certain types of people? No, he doesn't. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will believe might be saved, that they'd be reconciled to him. So these people are kind of immature. They're not sharing the gospel with everybody like Peter had just done with Cornelius. Does that mean that God can't use them? Absolutely not. Because though they are immature and they don't share the gospel with everybody, they are sharing the gospel. Many Christians have the hope of Jesus. They recognize it. They know it. But they don't share it. So I would say before you kick somebody that is not sharing it with certain people, they're only sharing it with one person, uh, make sure you're sharing it with other people, whoever it might be. And the beautiful thing about this is that as they're going in, they're sharing in Antioch, even though they're only reaching one type of person, God's the high commander. And he knew that this would be the case. So he sent both groups. And as they share with both groups, there's a large group of people that are coming to know Jesus. Now, so there's two groups. One came from Jerusalem. One came from Cyprus and Cyrene. One ended up at Cyprus and as far north as Antioch, and the others ended up in Antioch. One group preached the Lord to the, to, about Jesus to the Jews only, and the other ones preached to the Hellenists. But they both had one purpose. They were both sharing Jesus. They'd both been given the message of hope, and they were both spreading it. So, the Jewish Christians still didn't have a full grasp that God loved the whole world. They thought, hey, cool, salvation for us. Um, the Greeks and the Hellenists, they had nothing to talk about with the, the Jewish people. They didn't know the Old Testament. They just knew that Jesus saved them, and they were excited about it. So you could see where both groups would have a hard time communicating with one another. So each one of us in here has a niche. We have something we're interested in. We have something that we're excited about. We have something that relates to someone else. We don't have to share the gospel with every person. God's going to do that whether we can or not. But no matter what, both groups had received the message of Jesus and had come to a maturity where they were sharing their faith. So, verse 22. It says, they said, well, wrong chapter. Verse 22. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and great many people were added to the Lord. So you have these two groups doing this, and then Jerusalem, once again, they, they're not the ones doing anything, but they do hear that it's going on. They're listening. And so as they hear the, the news that there's this great work of God going on in Antioch, they want to know if it's really happening or if it's just hearsay. And so they take a man by the name of Barnabas. Now Barnabas has shown up in previous chapters, but his name means son of encouragement, son of consolation. And as he goes up there and he sees what God is evidently doing, not just, it's not just hearsay, but he sees the evidence of the, what they thought was a rumor, 
He's excited. You ever notice that people that are encouragers still need encouragement? Oftentimes, people that are very good at encouraging others, sometimes they encourage other people so much that other people assume that they don't need encouragement. Barnabas goes up there, he gets there, he sees the work of God, and he himself is encouraged. And so I think that's an important thing to notice because oftentimes people that are always encouraging people oftentimes get the least amount of encouragement. So he gets up there, he sees what God is doing, and he's encouraged. And as a result of him being encouraged, he's excited, he's going to use his gift. His gift is encouraging people, it's exhorting people, strongly encouraging them. And so when he gets up there, he does that. He, he basically takes what he is good at and he does it. So the church in Jerusalem caught wind. They sent him up there and he recognizes what's going on. He's blessed. And as a result of that, he shares his gift. And his gift is doing just what he's getting ready to do. It says there in verse 23, he was glad and he encouraged them. His message of encouragement to these believers that were new converts was this, with purpose of heart, continue with the Lord, with purpose of heart. Now, it's important that we look at that because it is just a a quick phrase, but what it means there is to make a conscious decision to serve the Lord, to continue. Uh, I know lots of people, and I've been one of these people, where I got saved, I understand that I'm a child of God, and that I've decided to follow Him. But there are days, believe it or not, that I don't feel like following Him. I'm tempted by other things. I'm drawn away. I'm excited about other things that that don't honor and glorify God. And so it's at those days where most of all I need to go, Lord, I don't feel like following You today, but I need to make a decision once again to continue to follow You. I need to continue to do it. And so um, this is what Barnabas was telling them. Now, it's important to notice that the place that he's in is Antioch. Antioch is not what we would think of as a place that was ripe and ready to hear the gospel. Antioch was not like Jerusalem, where they had the Old Testament that explained that there was going to be a Messiah coming that would fulfill all of it. Antioch was not like Caesarea, where Cornelius was a man who feared God, and he wanted a closer relationship with God. Antioch was actually a very large city. There was over a half a million people there in this time period. And I I wrote down a couple of things about Antioch. Antioch was different than most of the cities that were prominent at this time. It was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. We can kind of see that. Jerusalem's here. Antioch's there. It's about 300 miles. So So when in Jerusalem they go, Hey Barnabas, we want you to go check this out. He wasn't driving. He wasn't taking a train or a plane. He walked. He might have ridden an animal, but still, 300 miles. So basically, from here to Chicago, that's pretty long. He must have really wanted to see what was going on. And another thing is it was 20 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. Many considered this city, which is referred to as Syrian Antioch, because Antioch was named after this man that went and conquered and made all these cities and named them after his dad. There were actually 15 Antiochs at this time. And so these were Roman cities, uh, Greek cities. It was the third greatest city in the Roman Empire. And it was third to Rome and Alexandria. Rome still exists. So you can see that that was a pretty big city. 
Antioch was known for its business and its commerce and for its sophistication and culture. And here's not one you want to put on the water tower. It was known for its immorality. The city's reputation for moral laxity was enhanced by the fact that there was a a cult, a religious group that followed and worshipped Artemis and Apollo. And five miles away, there was also a place where they could worship Astarte and her consort. Now, I don't know much about those deities, those false gods, but what I do know is that in order to worship them, they would go to the temple, they would pay money, and they would sleep with a prostitute. That was their culture. That was religious worship to them. And so this was not a place where I would think, hey, you know, this place probably ready to receive the gospel of Jesus. And you could recognize that because Jesus would be a stark contrast to the ways that they were used to. One man wrote this about Antioch. One might say that Jerusalem was all about religion. Rome was all about power. Alexandria was all about intellect. And Athens was all about philosophy, and that's what these places were known for. But adding to that, one might say that Antioch was all about business and immorality. They were all about success and entertainment, pleasure. Does that sound familiar to anybody here? We live in a nation, we're all about business and success and the white picket fence or whatever the American dream is. And entertainment, pleasure. Those things are our major goals. So we're not much different than Antioch. So when the gospel came to Antioch, it came to an utterly pagan city. It didn't have any religious background other than, like I said, temple prostitution. And the gospel of Jesus would draw a stark contrast when brought near to a city where the immorality had been taken to such a level that even secular people would blush. It made them uncomfortable to talk about Antioch. So, did I mention also, well, I did mention that, it was also over half a million people. So this was not only a cultural center, but it was a very very large culture, and it affected many people. So for Barnabas to see the gospel received there would be quite the encouragement. He'd be like, wow, I didn't think that anybody could get the gospel to, to take root here. But he encouraged them strongly to make a decision. And he encouraged them strongly just like Joshua did when he took the Israelites into the land of Canaan. If you'll remember in the Old Testament, and if you haven't read it, read the book of Joshua. Basically, God had brought them across the Red Sea, delivered them from the Pharaoh in Egypt, and when they crossed over, finally, after 40 years of disobedience in the wilderness, they came into the land of Canaan. They crossed over the Jordan, and Joshua, Moses died, Joshua took over. And when they went in, it wasn't like all of a sudden everything was easy, but they had all these battles to conquer. They had all these enemies. They had all this problem with dealing with the, the pagan worship that was going on there. They had lots of cities to conquer. And when they got in there and conquered these cities, God gave them a, a time period of rest. They hadn't conquered all the other nations. They hadn't gotten rid of all the false worship, but they had gotten to a place where each of the 12 tribes had a place to reside. They had a place to live. And as they did, they got used to living there. Joshua told them, he warned them. He said, notice that God's given you rest. He's brought you into this land like he promised. And now he's given you homes. He's given you crops that you didn't plant. 
He's given you vineyards that you didn't build. He's given you cities that you didn't even lay the foundation of. He's given you everything that you have here. And also in the land, if they wanted rain, if they wanted their crops to grow, they had to trust him. Because there wasn't a river like there was in Egypt, like the Nile. So as they're in that place, he says, God's given you everything you have. Here's what it's going to take to be successful in this land. Because though you're in this place, you're still going to be tempted to worship other things. You're going to be tempted to worship other gods. And so he said, therefore, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, he said, Therefore, fear the Lord, serve Him completely, continually, and in truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Joshua understood that even if you don't serve God, you will serve somebody. So he said, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that you served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites that are here in this land. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Oftentimes people think that to be a Christian means that you make one decision and you just go on with your life. But I would contend with that idea because you need to decide every day who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve your own appetites? Are you going to serve your own opinion or your own ideas? Or are you going to serve the Lord? He says here, you need to choose consciously who you're going to serve. He says, you're going to be tempted to serve the gods that your parents served on the other side of the river, the traditions that you have as a family. You're going to be uh, concerned with the possibility of serving the gods that are now where you live. You're going to be tempted by that. But you have to make a decision. Either serve God or serve something else. Make the decision. So this is the same thing that Barnabas is telling these believers that are living in this pagan area in Antioch. He's saying, hey look, you're saved, you know Jesus, you trusted him for salvation, but realize that this isn't going to be easy because you're living in a, in a morally decrepit society that's going to tempt you. You're going to remember those of you that just got saved and used to go to the temple and get prostitutes. Sin is pleasurable for a season. You're going to remember that. You're only going to remember the good stuff. You're not going to remember that you didn't have hope in that. And you're going to be tempted to go back to those temples. But let me encourage you. Continue to serve the Lord because it's the only way to experience abundant life. It's the only way that you're going to finish well. Avoid those things that you used to do because they will mean death to you and those that are of your families. Don't serve them. He's warning them. Hey, look, this is a dangerous deal. You're basically like little kids left in a place where there are very dangerous tools. Watch out for them. Be aware. Stay sober and awake to these things. So Barnabas, there was so much more to what he was saying than just, hey, I encourage you to purpose in your heart, follow the Lord. But follow the Lord. I can't tell you any better advice. So, Verse 25. But notice the result in verse 24 was that a great many people were added to the Lord. You see, Barnabas wasn't going out and preaching to people that did not believe in Jesus. He was sitting amongst those that had already proclaimed to understand and believe the gospel. His part in the body of Christ was not preaching to the unbeliever. His part was building up 
and encouraging those who had already made a decision to believe. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we see the outworking, the explanation for this gift that God has given to ministers. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says that, in verse 11, God himself gave some to be apostles, those who were sent, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And here's the reason. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying the body of Christ. So Barnabas' job was to encourage those that had already believed, to explain to them, to equip them, to go and share with the unbelievers. That doesn't mean that Barnabas wasn't supposed to go and share with unbelievers, but his main gifting was to teach people and grow them, build them up in their faith, so that when they left the church doors, when they left the company of other Christians, they wouldn't be affected by the world, but they would affect the world. You see, sharing Jesus with people is not just the job of those who are preachers or pastors or worship leaders. It's for everyone that believes in Jesus. We've all been given this message of hope. We're all ambassadors for Christ. And so as Barnabas did his thing, he was one of those that helped others make things happen. And it says there, as a result of him doing that, in verse 23, or verse 24, that many people were added to the Lord because everyone that was going to church was being built up and equipped to go out and share the gospel. And when they did, many more people would believe than if one guy just went and did it all. Barnabas shared with this multitude, and they all went out, and even if they only shared with one person, brought in droves. And in this place of over a half a million people, uh, Barnabas could no doubt not meet all the needs. And so as we know that he couldn't meet all the needs, verse 25 says, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The first place that the disciples were called Christians was in Antioch. Not in Jerusalem, where the gospel was first shared. Not in Caesarea, where Cornelius was. But in this pagan city, they were called Christians for the first time. And it wasn't supposed to be a mark of honor. You know who called them Christians the first time? It wasn't the disciples. It was actually their enemies. It was those who were against the gospel, they said, you know what? You're like Jesus. You're like that guy that died on the cross. And they were like, sweet. That's awesome. Because that's who we were trying to be like. That's who we were trying to reflect the character of. Yes, he died, but what you don't know is he rose from the dead. And if I'm like Jesus and you see that in me, there's no better compliment. Uh, a pastor by the name of David Guzik, he wrote down uh, this way. He said, in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, the disciples had been referred to as disciples, disciplined ones. In Acts chapter 9, verse 13, they had been called saints. Do you know if you're a Christian, you are a saint. You don't have to wait till you're dead 100 years and they put you up in a stained glass window. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. It has nothing to do with what we do or what we did. It has to do with what Jesus did. In Acts chapter 5, verse 14, they had been called believers, and they did. They believed in Jesus Christ. They put their full weight, their trust in Him. In Acts chapter five, verse, or excuse me, six, verse three, they had been called brothers, and we are. We're the children of God. We're joint heirs. We're the family of God. We've been brought into His family. In Acts chapter five, verse thirty-two, they had been called witnesses, and they had. 
They were witnesses to the truth that Jesus had rose from the dead. They had experienced the new life that comes from believing in Him. In Acts chapter 9, verse 2, they were called Nazarenes. Excuse me, they were called followers of the way. And in Acts chapter 24, verse 5, they were called Nazarenes. But what I want to point out is now, now they would be called Christians. And the word Christian means like Christ. What greater compliment can you give someone that's trying to follow Jesus that they are like Christ? Let me ask you, when people ask you what you believe or why you believe it or what church you go to or what your religion is, what do you tell them? Most people will say, I'm a Baptist. Most people will say, I'm a Pentecostal. Or, you know, I guess if we had something we'd call ourselves, we'd say, I'm an Arcadia Valley Chapelite. But the reality is, we're none of those things. We're, we're Christians. We're Jesus' children. And so, uh, what do you say when people ask you? Let me challenge you. Tell them, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm trying to be like Christ. That's a humbling thing if we're actually not like Christ. But it also, it tells them, hey, look, you can look at my life. I'm trying to reflect Jesus. Let me ask you another question. Would your enemies call you a Christian? Would your friends call you a Christian? Would they know, if you didn't say anything to them, would they say, hey, there's something different about you? Are you one of those Jesus freaks? Are you one of those Christians? What would they say about you? Because what the enemies of those in Antioch called them, is they called them Christians. They said those people are like Christ, and they meant it for harm, but it ended up being a badge of honor. But the other thing is, is that Barnabas left the work. He was being encouraged, he was exercising his gift, but people were coming to the Lord so quickly, there were so many people to minister to, that he went and looked for Saul. He was willing to take a season away from work, and to go and get Saul because he remembered Saul because Saul was gifted. He was from Tarsus up there. He left for a while. He went and got Saul. It doesn't say that he went and got him right away. It says that he searched diligently for him. That word that he sought out Saul means that it took a bunch of work to go find him, but he needed help. He recognized that he wasn't enough to meet the need. And so oftentimes what happens is when we recognize we don't have the ability to meet the need, we go looking for help. And he went and looked for Saul. Had Barnabas not gone and gotten Saul, perhaps we wouldn't have most of the New Testament. He said, Saul, I recognize in you the gift of teaching, the gift of exhortation, and I need your help. Come help me in Antioch. And when he did, he found his niche. He found the thing he was always supposed to be doing. Before this, Saul kept going to these other towns and preaching in the synagogues. And every time he got sent out, they were trying to stone him to death. One time he literally almost gets stoned to death. But now he's going to go to these uh, people in Antioch. He's going to preach. He's going to do this. And there's going to be fruit from it. So verse 27, and let's wrap it up. In these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and he showed by the Spirit. Doesn't explain how. But he had knowledge that God had given him that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And we have secular record, records showing that this famine did in fact take place. Verse 29, Then the disciples, seeing the need, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. 
So rather than going into this big long thing that I wrote in my notes here, what I want to point out is in Antioch, Operation Antioch that I'm calling it, I call it that because God's using all these people that were sent to Antioch to share the gospel with the Jews and the Gentiles. And as he's done that, then he sent Barnabas to take the believers that were there and encourage them and teach them the word. And when Barnabas got overwhelmed, he went and got Saul. And Saul came back and did it with him. He brought in reinforcements. And as these men did what they were called to do, what happened is you have this body of believers that's built up, not for themselves, but to be a blessing to who originally was supposed to share the gospel with the whole world. Jerusalem. Jerusalem was supposed to be this place by which God would send Jesus. And Jesus would be the hope of Israel. Literally, that's what they called him. And then they would go out and share the gospel. But because they held it, they said, this is only for us, God did it a different way. And he sent them to Antioch. He built up this church there that ends up being a blessing to who? Jerusalem, the people that weren't willing to bless them in the first place. So God wants to do that in each one of our lives. We start out, as heinous as it sounds, as Antioch a place of immorality, a place of pagan worship, a place of idols, a place of just unspeakable things. And if you're really honest with it, there's probably things in your life that you hope no one ever finds out. Because before Jesus, I have all kinds of that stuff. But when Jesus saved me, what he did was he gave me a holy calling. And then he sent people alongside me. He sent Barnabases. He sent Saul, who becomes Paul. He sent these people to teach me the principles that God has given so that I would be built up in this most holy faith and then be sent out as a source of blessing. Not because I'm a blessing, but because God is a blessing through me. And he wants to do that in each one of our lives. He saves us. He gives us purpose. He says, now I want you to show the love of God through your life to someone else, just like I did for you. And you might be called to be a Barnabas. You might be called to be one of these that go and preach the gospel. And you might just be one of those that, as they're built up in their faith in Antioch, works their job every day, does something practical, gives as you're able, proportionally to what God gives you, and then you're going to be a blessing to someone else. You may not be called to be a preacher. You may not be called to be a Bible teacher. You might be called to be somebody that works faithfully every day, shares your faith, and takes a little bit of the money and sends it to somebody else. It looks different for every person. But Operation Antioch is not just for Antioch. God has an operation for Arcadia Valley. And that to me blows me away that God considers us just like he does a city of over half a million people. He is sending people to this area to preach the gospel, to build up believers. There's churches all over the place that are teaching God's word right now. And then he's also building you up so that when you go to wherever you work, you can do the same thing. But then he's also giving you finances and practical uh, abilities and skills so you can pass those on to somebody else. And when they say, hey, thanks a lot. You know, you're a really nice guy. You can look at him and go, Jesus loves you. He sent me to you because I don't usually come here. I, I failed at that yesterday. I went down to the river at Annapolis There was this guy in a big, huge conversion van. And as he pulled up onto the sandbar, his wheels locked up. He got into a really soft spot. And I pulled up, and I've got a Jeep. I've never been to this place before. 
And I walk up, and he has some problems with his brakes, and we use my bottle jack and jack him up, and his brakes weren't actually locked up. So he goes, okay, cool, you got a tow rope? And I said, yep. I love pulling stuff with the Jeep. That's why I got a Jeep. I like to play in the sand. And so I pulled up, we hooked up the rope, and we took off. We rolled him out of his spot. He was blessed. He's like, you rock. I was going to spend all day doing this. And I failed at one thing. I just said, you're welcome, which is not a sin. But I should have told him, God loves you, and he sent me here. You know, find a place to go worship him tomorrow. And oftentimes we miss out on those opportunities because we just, I just wasn't bold enough. I knew that's what I was supposed to do, and I kept my mouth shut. Let me encourage you, don't keep your mouth shut. Open it. Let God be a blessing through you. But thank you for grace, you know. God's got lots of grace on us. Next time, I'll know. (laughs) I'll go for it. I mean, I'm never going to see the guy again. If he calls me a Christian, I mean, what, you know. uh, If he tries to slander me, I'm never going to see him again. Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you do love us so much, that you desire not only to bless us, but you want to use us to be a source of blessing. Lord, continue to send people to Arcadia Valley to share the gospel with those that we may not reach. Continue to show us who you're sending us to so that we will share Jesus and the hope and the forgiveness of sin and the revealing that God wants to be in relationship with us. Father, please uh, build us up. Teach us to understand your word. Help us to listen to Bible teachers on the radio or whatever so that we can be built up and so that we can be prepared to be sent out. Lord, thank you for your word and how inspiring it is. When something good goes on and you use us in a certain way, help us to share it with others so that they can be encouraged as well. Help us to encourage one another. And Father, thank you so much that you uh, are involved in all the details. Operation Antioch, Operation Arcadia Valley, Lord, uh, use it all for your glory. And help us to see that plan unfolding. Help us to do our part. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.